And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So by all accounts, I think I have some pretty impressive accomplishments in my life. You know, this show is almost at 200 episodes. I have a master's degree in film and television, which I put to good use on my other podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, which is itself is approaching 100 episodes. I have a black belt in karate. And I've memorized every Magic the Gathering card from 1994 to 2010. But I think we can all agree that I've never climbed Mount Everest. Now, that is something that my guest today, Jim Davidson, has done. As a matter of fact, he attempted it twice. The first time, uh, he was stymied by one of the largest earthquakes in Nepal history and two avalanches that converged on his location and stopped within feet of covering his camp in snow and rocks. He survived that incident and decided to go back because he really wanted to get to the top. And it is that perseverance that he really captures in his book, The Next Everest, which is about his journey up and down Mount Everest uh, both times. And it is just a fantastic read, incredible twists and turns, stuff that I really want to get into because I don't know much about the mountain climbing culture or much about Everest. So I'm really excited to dive right in. So Jim Davidson, Thank you so much for being on the show today. Do you like Jim? Do you like Jimmy Jam? I've always wanted to call someone named Jim, Jimmy Jam. <laughs> what, what do you prefer? I'd prefer Jim in that case. Okay. All right. All right. If I slip a Jimmy Jam in there, I do apologize. It is my favorite nickname. Oh, that's okay. Uh, so, let you know, we're talking about, so the book you just came out with, it's called The Next Everest. Right. While I was reading it, you know, this is really about you climbing Everest, not so much about the next Everest. So I don't know if it's too late to get it to the publisher, but I was offering a suge- an alternate title, which is the next time you climbed Everest. Is that uh, how does that work? Is that better or is that worse? Is that well? It's a little too late. They printed them about four months ago. It's been on the market for three. So <laughs> too, love your idea. Go. Happy to pass it along. Maybe we could get some duct tape, you know, and we could like put the you put it across, you know, the big red X or something. But no, the um, fascinating nouns version. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, no, so I know you. So the reason why I know you called that is because what you did, which is great with this, is you take this incredible story of not only surviving a first attempt, uh, almost getting sandwiched by avalanches and one of the largest quakes in Nepal's history, where Everest is. Uh, you then you go back to Everest, uh, you know, older, you know, physically older, which is tough, but a little bit wiser, uh, and you climb Everest despite all the things working against you. So the next Everest actually is really. Um, uh, an inspirational title about people looking to find their next goal, their next mountain to climb. Is that pretty accurate? Correct. Because most of our listeners, most of your listeners and the other people I talk to are not going to be climbing Mount Everest. So if I shared lessons about mountain climbing, that's not of much use to them. But everybody's going to pick a big goal or have a challenge thrust in front of them, say like a pandemic. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, how am I going to handle this thing? What am I going to do? So I tried to share lessons from my Everest that will help them with their next Everest. So, yeah, it, it is kind of a double meeting there. Well, in, and what's great, you know, what's interesting about the book, right, is it's it's almost like a step-by-step, it's like a minute-by-minute journal of your time on Everest. I was both impressed, but also um, kind of curious, is it because you had so much time you were able to do this, like minute-by-minute? Because there, I mean, there's a lot going on in this book. After reading it, I felt like I had climbed Everest. I mean, that's the kind of detail you put into it. Was there a lot of time for journaling? How do you remember some of these details, um, especially when you're writing a book? I mean, I was very impressed with the level of detail in this thing. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. And that's what one of the things I was trying to do was make it feel to the reader like they were actually there. Small things like the cold on the back of your neck, mm. uh, the crunch of the crampons beneath your feet as you cross the glacier. I, I tried to bring that to life and I've been a climber for 39 years now. So I would just sort of think to myself, when I'm crossing that glacier, what did I hear? What would they hear? So I try to bring those moments to life. As far as getting all the details down in my journals, yeah, really on Everest, you spend a good third of your time or more 
sitting around waiting for the weather to clear, waiting for your body to grow more red blood cells so that you can go back up higher on the mountain. So yeah, I mean, we literally spend 20, 25 days sitting around. So I took a lot of pictures, I took a lot of notes, I took a lot of videos, and I really used those as my uh, fact-checking methodology. I would write a particular story <laughs> from my head and heart, yeah. then I would go back and I would check my journal, which I have a lot of, and then I would check my videos, and then I would check my photos, and that's how I would get things like, oh, that's right, that person was wearing a red jacket and they were heading towards the ice fall when they said that, that kind of thing. Right. Well, and I'd love to get some of those pictures, maybe some of the video. I know you've got a YouTube channel we're going to link to uh, with some great video there. Um, great. I mean, no problem. It's, it's, yeah, it's a fascinating journey. So let's start at the beginning because every journey has a beginning and the beginning did was not really when you were with your family deciding to go to Everest and then deciding to go back to Everest. Uh, this all must have happened, you know, much, much earlier so were you always an outdoorsy kind of kid? I mean, were you climbing trees? Were you climbing hills? I mean, were you always getting on top of counters when you were a baby? Like, what was really the story here? Yeah, I grew up in Concord, Massachusetts, pretty flat. The nearest hill was about 400 feet tall, which when I first skied at age eight, looked like Mount Everest to me. Right, yeah. um, so, I, you know, as a kid, I played in the woods behind my house in suburban Massachusetts. Uh, you know, but really what did it is I saw a black and white photograph of Mount Everest in my parents' encyclopedia. Sitting in their basement, flipping through those pages of the encyclopedia, I saw that photo and I thought, wow, what an amazing place. It just planted a little seed, but I didn't think I'd ever be a climber because, frankly, I was a terrible athlete as a kid. I was not very good at ball sports. I was always picked last. <laughs> And in high school, I couldn't even run a mile, literally could not run a mile. Wow. So the thought that I would become a climber was pretty far away. But eventually I got fit through backpacking and I grew up working for my dad's industrial painting company. So I was climbing ladders by the time I was eight, uh, walking roofs when I was 12 with no safety gear on. And I could operate a crane before I was old enough to drive a car, literally. So I grew up in this environment of doing hard projects above the ground and eventually I thought, I can combine these two things. I can go out into the wilderness and climb mountains, which is a lot prettier than industrial painting sites, and that's what led me to start climbing when I was 19 years old. Well, the good news is, is I think the statute of limitations has expired on some of those child uh, work abuses that, that, you, that you encounter in the book. So we won't, we, luckily, it won't see any legal ramifications for that. Uh, but, you know, it's... it's <laughs> What also struck me, there were a couple of things that you mentioned really quickly as far as your expertise in climbing. It's not just that you are a climber, but you studied glaciology, which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, so you're a, you're a trained geologist. And, you know, I want to talk about that. But there's also one cool little tidbit you mentioned in the book, which I knew, but I forgot I knew. And then you reminded me of. And it's amazing is that Everest, the tallest point in the world, was at one point the bottom of an ancient ocean. So there's lots of you said the bedrock contains fossilized remains of those oceans. I mean, that's crazy to think about that the tallest point on Earth may have been one of the lowest points under the ocean at one, you know, at one time in history. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your history and, and that little tidbit, if you could. Yeah, I was always interested in science. Even when I was a young kid, I had chemistry sets and telescopes and microscopes. I think when I was around nine, I insisted my parents stop calling it my bedroom and call it my laboratory. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I was a little science nerd, right? Yeah. Um, I took tons of science in high school and college, and I became a geologist. And in particular, I got interested in environmental geology, uh, soil, water, and glaciers. Yeah. So I took a lot of cl classes in glaciology, almost became a glaciologist, but instead I became a groundwater scientist, studying how water moves and how to clean it up in the soil and things like that. So I was a geologist, uh, you know, for 20 years before I started becoming a speaker and a writer like I am now. But I did all kinds of geology projects all around the world. And so as a result, when I'm moving in the mountains, I kind of see everything through a geologist's eye, mm. uh, both the glaciers and the environmental conditions where I'm moving. And that was some of what I wanted to put into the next Everest is, what is it like being on Everest? What do the glaciers look like? What are the environmental conditions? So I felt like I was kind of a representative scientist to help bring back key lessons and key tidbits to the reader. Yeah, I guess you can never really get rid of that, right? If you're a scientist or you're an educator at heart, you can't really help but, you know, do those little things. Or if you're a know-it-all like me and you just like pointing those things out to people to impress them even in a small little way. <laughs> uh, but, you know, one of the things that, that was so interesting to me about the book was, you know, we find out why you want to climb. You know, there's tons of great stories uh, about very dangerous, almost more dangerous stories about you and the industrial painting that you did. Uh, but the culture of climbing, you know, not just climbing that hill when you were eight years old, but climbing 
big mountains, things that are dangerous, high altitude. There's, it seems like there's a strange, you know, kind of subculture of people who love to do this, and they, you have to prepare for a lot of risks and a lot of, uh, well, your your human biology is not meant to be that high for long periods of time, and there right. was the preparation was so interesting. So I want to just quickly talk about some of your preparation for the first time, you know, because high altitude, things can go wrong very quickly. So what were you preparing your body to endure? And then what were the safeguards you put in place to make sure that you survived the journey? Yeah, you you struck on a good point, which is if you want to climb big mountains, first of all, there's a lot of different skills, Mm -hmm. snow climbing, rock climbing, navigation, avalanche awareness, first aid. So you got to spend years collecting those skills. Uh, Some people will try and rush off to Everest in their first few years as a climber. I think that's a serious mistake. You need a very broad set of skills and be really deep in some areas. Mm, so doing that took me took me 30 years to get to the point where I felt like my skills were strong enough that I could go up on big peaks like Everest. And then you have to get into the physical conditioning that you were talking about. And first of all, you know, you've got to be in good general condition from all the other prior climbs. But you have to get not only in the best shape of your life, you have to go beyond that. You have to teach your body how to respond when it's already tired. And so I set out on a year-long campaign for my first expedition to just add more and more endurance. So I did all the things you might think. I, I weightlifted a lot to add strength. I lost body fat. I did long endurance. Uh, for me, it was trail runs. I did a lot of trail runs and a lot of long days in the mountains. And as I get closer to the expedition, I did less of that kind of gym stuff and runs because how long is a long time in the gym? An hour, maybe two, that's a long time. When we go out on alpine climbing days here in the Rocky Mountains, our days are 10, 12, 16 hours. And on Everest, you'll do multiple days like that in a row. And on summit day, you may be up for 24, 36 hours with zero sleep, not enough food, not enough water. So towards the end of my training, I started stacking days one on top of the other. I would climb today, lift weights and run tomorrow when I was tired and then climb again the third day. So you're stacking it. And what you're teaching is your body and your mind to respond when you're already completely depleted. I also did what I call depletion days, which is I would look for the coldest night, the coldest hour of the coldest nights in the winter. I would get up at two o'clock in the morning. I would put on my down suit that I wear on the 8,000 meter peaks, uh, the high peaks. And I would go out at two in the morning and I would intentionally drink no water and eat no food. Just roll out, get in my down suit and go out into the cold and plod my way up my nearest mountain to teach myself you don't have water, you don't have food. This is what it's going to feel like. Yeah. So were you, I mean, was the goal to get as close to death as possible so you wouldn't fear it if you faced it on Everest? Because that sounds pretty close to death or at least dangerous. But I imagine you probably took some precautions. You got to have a, a granola bar in your back pocket or something, Jim. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, I would do these all, I would do these deprivation days and these stacking days on peaks that I already knew well. I'd climb them anywhere from three to 30 times each. So my wife would worry. She's like, you're going out alone at two in the morning and it's 16 below. Well, if something goes wrong i was like i have climbed horsetooth mountain 50 times i could crawl down it with my eyes closed um and of course i brought my cell phone and a a gps emergency thing so i i did it a smart way so i wouldn't become a burden to others if you will but i i I just wouldn't touch that food and water because the idea was not so much to be near death because i wasn't near death you're 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 depriving yourself of that because that's what's going to happen on the mountain so i was trying to simulate conditions in my training that i'd have to face when that summit push comes. Well, yeah, and, and as long as you have your affairs in order, you won't be a burden on others. And it sounds like your wife had uh, what was going to be on your tombstone anyway, which is, ah, I know horse, I know horse tail mountain. Don't worry about that. <laughs> <The> last words <laughs> well, uttered, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, when, when we had kids and we just bought our, our second house and my kids were two and four and I was going on my first Himalayan expedition in 1998. And she said, I want mortgage insurance in case something happens, the house will be paid off. And I said, no, no, I tried to explain to her why fiscally that was stupid and we don't need it. And she's like, I insist upon it because she was staying home taking care of her kids. Right. So we go to get the insurance and the guy interviews me. He's like, oh, it looks like it's going to be about uh, about $200 or so. But let me submit the questions to the boys in Chicago. And it went to the boys in Chicago and came back. And I answered, they were asking questions about climbing. And I answered like 19 out of 20, I answered yes. And they came back and they would offer us uh, the insurance. But it came back at six times the original uh, quoted price. Uh, so there, yeah, there's some planning involved and some coverage necessary if you're going to do these things. Yeah, for sure. Well, it also sounds like a lot of this training is a mental game. You know, I mean, it's 
there's a you have to tell your body that it isn't tired and you have to keep going forward and training it to be in those situations so that it's not going to fail you. Uh, I thought that was really interesting, which is, you know, one of the couple of the other things really quickly that I thought were inter- interesting that can go wrong is your cardiovascular system just operates very differently when it's oxygen deprived. Uh, you can get altitude sickness. Some uh, climbers, their corneas freeze, which is so crazy. Uh, and one, oh, the other thing that was, you can get sunburned on the roof of your mouth because you pant open mouthed for too long because the snow reflects light in all directions. I mean, these are just things you don't think about. I mean, it's the same thing when you run in a marathon, if you've never run one before that, you know, you're, you have to put grease or something on your nipples or tape or because they start bleeding from the, the friction. I mean, it's these little weird things you don't think about. Uh, was there anything that you did not prepare for that became an issue at some point during any of your climbs? Uh, well, all of those, you're right. There's, there's dozens of little tricks that you have to learn about being in the mountains or running a marathon. And you also have to learn how you're going to adapt to those, those tricks because they, your trick may not work for me. Right. So you've got, you have to find, what I say in the book is you have to find your weaknesses and fix them before you get to the mountain. Mm. And my weakness might be my bad knee or that I breathe too much open mouth. So I keep sunburning the roof of my mouth. I'll learn to keep my mouth shut and breathe through my nose. Right. So those, you have to find all those weaknesses and fix them for years before you get in a really tough situation like on Everest. Uh, so yeah, there's lots and lots of those tricks and I had to solve them one at a time. Um, I, you know, I had to figure out what kind of nutrition I need when I get up at two o'clock in the morning in the dark. Uh, can I handle Pop-Tarts or does it have to be a bagel? You have to know your very, very, very well before you get in those extreme circumstances. So there were dozens of those things, maybe a hundred of those things I had to figure out about the mountain and myself before even trying Everest. Right. Well, one of the other things, so you're not going up there alone, right? So you you have Sherpas, which I, I found even the Sherpa, just that concept is very interesting. So I'm going to quickly describe it and you're going to correct all my mistakes. So Sherpas are really the, the mountain guides in Everest, uh, in Nepal. And I got the impression that they're both, it's both a job and a culture. So so it's a job that they get paid for, but it's also a group of people who've been doing this and their ancestors ancestors have been doing this for, you know, hundreds of years. And there's a specific team of Sherpas that actually go up in advance and create the route. So that you know the glaciers constantly shifting, the ice is moving, you know, crevasses are opening up all over the place. So they actually put the ropes in place, the carabiners, uh, sometimes very unsafe ladders that are lashed together over large open gaping holes in the earth. They go up and do all this stuff so that all the other people can, can go up and through. Uh, plus, they melt the water. Uh, mel- I'm sorry, they you know melt water. It's very easy to melt water. Uh, they melt the snow into water. And they all are the ones making all the food. They're doing a big job here. They're kind of like the, you know, the invisible people, you know, up there because everyone hears about the stories that they come back and tell. But no one talks about the Sherpas. I, I just found them incredible, including the fact that they have to melt a couch, sh- couch-sized piece of snow every day uh, for the amount of people that they bring up. I mean, these guys sound incredible. Um, we'll, we'll get to yours. We'll get to PK in, in a second because I found him to be pretty interesting. But uh, I, I, what did I miss on these guys? Am I, am I giving them enough credit? Yeah, you're giving them plenty of credit and they probably deserve even more than you said okay. because they do all those things. And you got it right on a number of levels. Sherpa is an ethnic group and a lot of the early high altitude porters came from that ethnic group of the Sherpa people, which means people from the east in Tibetan. Uh, they've been living in the high mountains for hundreds of years. And so their their ethnic, ethnicity, Sherpa, has kind of, blurred into a job description, Sherpa, which I write with a small s, capital S for the ethnic group and the language they speak, small s for the job description, because there are people who work as high altitude guides and porters who are not from that ethnic group. So you, some people might sloppily say they're they're working as a Sherpa, small s, uh, but we sometimes call them high altitude workers because there's lots of different jobs as you describe. And one person doesn't do all the things you just described. That would be a team of people. There might be, there will be cooks and cook's assistant. Uh, the people who put in the route, they're very specialized team we call the ice fall doctors because they fix and repair it like doctors would fix your broken bone they fix the broken glacier and that yeah all that is necessary for people like myself to have a chance up there so it would be very difficult Uh, people have climbed high mountains without sherpas but it's certainly far easier with them and also they're indigenous to the area they are much better adapted to the high altitude than someone like me or you so they deserve a lot of credit and the good news is that 
in books, in movies, in discussions like this, their important contributions on a number of fronts are becoming more well-known than they were in the decades past. You, you can find a lot of films and books uh, paying appropriate respect to the hard work they do. And I try to put that in my book, The Next Everest, in the same way. Yeah, I thought it came through very much so. Uh, I thought they were great. I mean, we're going to talk about PK because I love his story. And I, uh, he starts with your first attempt, which we're going to get to in one second, because the last thing I want to talk about um, is, you know, you talk in the book about how there's these crevasses everywhere. Um, is that is it crevasse or crevasse? Is it uh, crevice? What, 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 what do you what do you how do you like to say it? I'm glad you asked. Uh, let's talk about geology. Sure. For a second. Uh, <laughs> a, 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 it is crevasse with, with uh, two S's in there at the end. And that is a French word meaning a crack in a glacier. The word crevice is more common to most of us. That would mean a crack in anything, a crack in bedrock, a crack in the, the sheetrock in your house or a crack in the glacier. But when we talk about cracks and glaciers, it's crevasse or crevasses if there are many of them. OK, so these things are everywhere. And, um, you know, I don't want to bring up, uh, I don't want to bring down the interview too much here, but you had quite a tragic encounter with the crevasse uh, when you climbed Mount Rainier and lost one of your climbing partners, um, which you wrote a whole book about, which sounds devastating. Um, and that, to me, sounds terrifying because these are big open holes in the ground. They seem to be everywhere, at least the way you describe it is they're everywhere. They can be covered in snow, so you can't see them, you know, kind of like a tiger trap uh, that you see in the right. cartoons or whatever. Um, and, you, you know, you've already witnessed the devastation that they can cause. That must have been, was that the most terrifying thing you had to get over mentally before you went on, is the, the fact that these open holes are everywhere, ready to snatch you into the darkness? Um, or were there other things that were even more dangerous than that? That was probably the biggest one for me. I mean, certainly these these are literally cracks in the ice. As you said, sometimes we can see them. Often we cannot see them because they're hidden under the snow. They scare all sensible people, including all sensible climbers. That's uh, <laughs> what I say about sharks, case, by the way, Jim. I say the same thing about sharks. Yes. <laughs> yes. I heard about your shark phobia a little bit when you were interviewing other people. Uh, phobia is uh, a little strong there, Jim. Phobia is a little oh, strong, but maybe. Uh, it's phobia adjacent for sure. Yeah, well, well, with good cause, with good cause. No one wants to get eaten by a shark. No one wants to get eaten by a crevasse. Um, as a matter of fact, when I climbed uh, Denali or Mount McKinley up in Alaska, there was a huge crevasse that had been there for years, and we nicknamed it Jaws because it was just sitting there with a gaping mouth just waiting for some climbers to fall into yeah. it. Yeah, so crevasses are serious business. They're, they're scary to all climbers, and me in particular because, uh, like you say, I, I wrote a book called The Ledge and sadly shared the story where I lost my good friend Mike when he and I both fell 80 feet inside a crevasse uh, inside a glacier on Mount Rainier. And that was my first book, came out years ago. It's it's still out there. Uh, but certainly that brought my fears of, you know, the, the, the guilt and sadness over losing my friend Mike, the fact that I barely was able to crawl out of this crevasse alone. And that was a struggle just to go back to any kind of climbing, let alone to step onto a glacier again. So I had kind of uh, bridged that, if you will, and faced that many times before on previous high mountains. But it's always just under my psyche, just under my skin to be afraid of these crevasses. So yeah, I, I would step a lot across a lot of crevasses on Everest and think back to Rainier, loss of my friend and the fear of being down inside those dark, icy chambers. Hey, I can only imagine. So, I mean, you know, just to, one last thing on that is when you were, I think it was your first trip up, which we're about to get into, to go to the bathroom, which was, you know, kind of an issue, you had to kind of navigate them or at the very least there were crevasses, you know, lurking in the darkness. You know, you could walk to the bathroom uh, and end up, you know, falling in one of these things, which is, um, it's, I mean, to have that on your mind constantly must be scary. Uh, but let's talk about this first attempt. So you've, you've done all the work. You're going up. This is 2015. Um, to me, this part, there's kind of two parts to the story here. And this is the first part, which, which to me is my favorite part, probably because it's the most exciting and the most historic um, as far as the world goes. I'm not to take anything away from your accomplishment, but, but this was really, you know, kind of crazy. So when you go... Uh, I, th I thought this this was kind of cool too. Is when you go on any trip, you take a couple of good luck pieces with you. Um, what are those really quickly, and what are the, what's their significance to you? Yeah, uh, the first one is I bring the Colorado Outward Bound pin from my friend Mike that died on Mount Rainier. His dad gave me the pin. Mike used to wear it, um, and it's it's kind of an homage to the things that Mike taught me through all the years that we were Alpine climbing partners. So I bring that with me, but I also bring a, a necklace, a religious necklace from the Catholic religion that my wife and I grew up with, and. Uh, 
she got it from somebody that got it from the Pope years ago. And when I went on my first climb in, in 1982, she gave it to me for good luck and safety in 1982. Wow. And since 1982, I've been wearing it on all my big climbs. And uh, we have a little sort of little ceremony the way she puts it on my neck, gives me a kiss and sends me off on the expedition. So I bring those amulets with me basically when I go on big peaks everywhere I go. And I keep them with me uh, just as both the reminder of the people that I'm got to get back to and the things I've learned from others. And just hopefully for a little bit of good luck on the mountain as well. You know, one of the things I did a whole episode on superstitions, uh, an earlier episode of Fascinating Now, the superstitions. And I, you know, I think that they're fun and I poo poo them. Uh, and I love them about baseball. It's my fa- one of my favorite parts of baseball is all the weird superstitions. However, despite the fact that I poo-poo them, they seem to have uh, served you well. So <laughs> I would definitely keep doing those same rituals, whatever they are. Uh, I think you should keep doing them because they are maybe they may not be responsible for keeping you safe, but hey, it can't hurt, right? Uh, exactly. <laughs> so you have to when when anyone is climbing Everest, a couple of things really struck out to me. A how much it cost to do it, <laughs> which which was, uh, I think it's a, a yearly salary. I mean, if I remember correctly, just a permit is like $11,000. Roughly the full Correct. amount is $45,000. Um, that's bananas to me. Uh, but also that you have to kind of plan this in a, a year in advance because there's a specific season that you go up because as you know, we learn you, there's a whole process. It's not just, you don't, they don't just drop you off at the foot of the mountain and you climb up, pop back and you're done, you know, in a day or two. I mean, it's like a month long trip up, down, up, down, up, down, up to the top, back down. Um, so there's a very specific time and you may not be able to go because of weather. So you have to be there for a limited amount of time. Um, this seems kind of difficult to plan for. Um, but is, was that, you know, was that kind uh, that must've been on your mind. How far in advance did you start that planning? Was it a year? Was it earlier? And have you been saving since you were 12 years old to afford that trip? Yeah, I, I have read dozens of Everest books over the years and known people that went. And so I was sort of slowly accumulating that knowledge, literally over two or three decades, little tiny nuggets like that and putting in my mind and starting to collect the gear. I mean, just collecting the gear and, and spending all the money on that can take a significant amount of time. So I really, I was a climber for 33 years before I went to Everest in the first uh, the first trip in 2015. That's longer than most people. Some people will be five or 10 years, and I think that's adequate, but not a lot of time to train to be up high on Everest. But yeah, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. Uh, and I have shed almost every hobby I've ever had before this uh, just to, so I could climb. Right. Um, you know, I like I literally don't watch any TV sports. I have no idea who won the Grammys. Um, I, I don't have other hobbies that other people might have with like darts or bowling or uh, fishing or hunting or boating. I don't do any of that stuff. I put dedicate myself to climbing and hope my family and my job as well. So, yeah, it is a big, long dedication. It's not just a little hobby. It's it's a lifestyle and it takes years to learn all that knowledge. So I was prepping for this, you could argue, several decades before I went uh, to build up to the point where I felt like I understood the mountain. I understood myself and that I understood how my equipment worked. I'd been in and out of difficult situations. I had helped out on rescues, uh, and I hopefully knew what it meant to be a good team member and do my part of the work as well. But all that takes a long time to gather together. Yeah, I love that you said that you've dedicated your life to climbing and then spoke about that for a minute and then quickly snuck in family and job, just in case, because someone there will be listening for <laughs> well, sure. Well, my wife might be listening to this podcast. I'm not sure. Right, right. Uh, but no, but I, I think you see in the book. I mean, I, I've been married to the same lady for going on 32 years now. We've got two, we raised two kids. Uh, and, you know, my career is important to me as well. So yeah, that's got to be part of it. But, it, you know, clearly, if you're going to spend the amount of time and money on something like this, it has to be passion driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense uh, financially or time management wise or making your spouse happy or getting things done around the house. All those things are suffering when someone is pursuing a big passion, including Everest or marathons or music. Yeah. I mean, that, that was kind of what was impressive to me is just how much, you know, Climbing Everest is a gigantic endeavor for anybody, but unlike other endeavors, uh, you know, this is a hobby that kind of took your entire life to do and kind of takes everyone their entire life to do. As you mentioned, there's so many skills you have to accumulate and, you know, and and you dedicate so much time to it, which is why your trip in 2015, you know, that's a great setup because 
you know, you arrive uh, in Everest. You've you've convinced your wife, who was you know iffy about the whole thing for obvious reasons. You you got to go ahead. You went there. You spent the money. You arrive at base camp, which is the bottom of the hill, and you make your way up. So as you're, you know, the way it works is there's several different camps on their way up to the summit, and so you're kind of working your way up them and back down to get acclimated. You need to get your red blood cell count up. You need to get your body used to being at high altitude. So there's a whole process. So you arrive. And I think it takes you nine hours of hiking to get up to Camp One, if I'm correct. Uh, so you're you're sitting at Camp One. You're nine hours into this trip. You're super excited, um, and then things change very quickly. That excitement, um, you know, gets changed uh, by a very historic moment. So tell me a little bit about what's going on. You know, what what are your feelings at the time, and then what happens to kind of alter your plans? Right. You you just you set it up well. So, you know, I've been a climber for 33 years. It's April 25th of 2015. I've done all the homework and preparation I could. I've joined a really good team with a lot of strong Sherpas and experienced guides. So you would think we've probably checked all the boxes for all the possibilities. And we would have liked to thought we'd done that. But things change real quick because we get up to Camp One and we're camped on the glacier. It's called the Kumbu Glacier. It's at about 19,700 feet. And we had climbed all night. We climb in the darkness through the most oh, wow. dangerous part of the glacier. So we had left base camp at 17,500 feet. We left there about two o'clock in the morning. Uh, we get to Camp One about nine o'clock in the morning, about seven hours of climbing. And we're tired because we've been climbing all night. And you would think, well, why do you climb the most dangerous part in the dark? Well, that's because it's the coldest hours of the night and the glacier is most frozen right. and hopefully most stable, right. least likely to bury us in an avalanche. So we climb during the dangerous but cold time. We get up there, we're resting in our tents and me and my tent mate Bart are kind of half asleep in our tent. It's 11.56 a.m. Nepal standard time. And I hear a rumble off to one side and I sort of listen and Bart says kind of sleepily, avalanche? And I go, yeah, I think so. And we're not very upset by it because you hear avalanches on Everest every single day. And they're usually miles away and going in the other direction. And you listen for a minute and ah, it's fading away. We don't have now, to worry is that, about it. Is that true? I, because that seems kind of, you know, concerning. I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so there's earthquakes, you know, all the time. I don't really feel them, but I know that they happen. So is it similar to that where they're, I, I just didn't think that they were that common, but they are that common, it sounds like. Yeah, they, they are. Not necessarily on, on Everest. There are dozens of other surrounding high peaks. And that's why you hear one could be one mile away, could be three miles away, could be on a slope that's going, usually is on a slope going in different directions where you're at. So you are literally at zero risk just because there's an avalanche happening over there. It's like it's like if you live three miles from the, the highway in L.A., there might be a car crash out there, da right. very dangerous if you're standing on the highway, but you're three miles away. You're not really in danger. So you get kind of used to it. So we hear the first avalanche, no big deal. But then a second avalanche started rumbling down near our tent. And we realized that there were avalanches coming at us from two sides. Wow. Now, the sidewalls next to us, one of them, the short wall, is 4,000 vertical feet. The taller wall is 6,000 vertical feet. And as a geologist, I thought two avalanches at the same time from two different directions, that's not right. Something's wrong. So yeah. I yelled to Bart. I said, get out of the tent because we don't want to be in the tent. I, I've taken a lot of avalanche classes as well. And we don't want to be in the tent when the avalanches <laughs> arrive right. because this, the, the force of the snow, the flowing force of it, will use the tent like a sail or a sea anchor and drag us under. So wow. we prefer to be outside because you can swim on top of an avalanche, sort of, because it's it's a flow it's it's a flowing liquid of air and snow particles. So you can swim on it, and a number of people have saved their lives by swimming in flowing avalanche debris. Really, that's really possible. I don't mean to stop you there, but that, you can really swim in an avalanche. That's I've never yeah. heard that before. That's insane. That's yeah, crazy. I, I okay. mean, it, it may not work. I mean, you may get hit by a rock the size of a house. Right. You may get yeah. hit in the head with a chunk of ice the size of a refrigerator. Uh, it may not work, but that people have swum out of avalanches uh, scores of times over the years. So wow. okay. that is, it's a last ditch effort, of course, but that's one of the things to do to maximize your chances. So we're, we're trying to scramble out of the tent to be outside so we have the potential to swim. And then all of a sudden our tent lifted into the air about eight inches, hovered for about two seconds and dropped back down. Whoa. And then it went back into the air again. And what I realized is it's an earthquake. And th what's raising our tent up is those waves of earthquake are rippling through the glacier. And being in our tent was like being on a life raft on the ocean. And our tent's going up and down wow. and up and down. And that's when I realized we are in the middle of a huge earthquake. And that's what happened at 11.56 a.m., on April 25th. And we didn't know it yet because there was no measurements made yet, but it was the largest earthquake in Nepal in 81 years. 
7.8 magnitude. And as you know, that's a pretty darn big earthquake. That's gigantic. I mean, I would not, I mean, people don't want to be in a seven story building in Los Angeles in a, you know, in a five or six, much less on, you know, the tallest point in the world <laughs> at a 7.8. And what was crazy is so you hear these two avalanches and you find out that they're actually coming both like barreling towards you on both sides. You're getting sandwiched in. I mean, it's almost like an action movie where, you know, you could easily get buried under the snow so much so uh, that you turned on your GPS transponder. Just in, I mean, you were like making plans and you I mean, you were planning for the worst from my, from my understanding. Well, yeah, I, I brought a, a GPS uh, signaling device, but I also had more importantly an avalanche transceiver, which is like a small GPS. Oh, that's what I meant. It's, yeah, 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 right. Yeah, they're, they're kind of similar. The avalanche yeah. transceiver sends out a signal for a couple hundred feet and it can also be received by others. So you can uh, both right. receive and transmit. So uh, yeah, we had brought them with me. Uh, I brought them with me and I, put, I had time to put mine on because this earthquake last for something like 90 seconds, which is a long, long time for an earthquake. Oh, that is a long earthquake. Yeah, and that's what makes it, you know, after a while, the, the earth can't shake any harder. I think it's at about 7.0. And so above that, it shakes at that same maximum level, but it shakes longer and longer and longer as you go from seven to eight, and God forbid, eight to nine on, on the right. magnitude scale. So that's what really knocks down buildings and knocks down mountains is what, it goes longer and longer and things start falling down. So I had time to put my avalanche transceiver on. We raced outside the tent. And we hoped to be able to see that the avalanches were going in opposite directions away from us because actually we might be near it, but not actually in the path of danger. But we couldn't see anything because it was afternoon. It's cloudy. It's often cloudy on Everest in the springtime in the afternoons. So we couldn't see anything. It was like it was like standing on a highway in a foggy, foggy night and hearing trucks roaring at you with their horns blaring. And you, you don't know which way to run to be safe. Do I go right and be safe right. or will that get me killed? So we stood outside for a minute or two, staring at the clouds, wondering which way the avalanches would come from. And that's when the wind started coming. It wasn't weather wind. It was wind from the avalanches coming straight at us. And the avalanches are so big, they're bulldozing the air out of the way. And I knew this as a geologist and from my avalanche training. And when I knew that we were in the path of the bulldozing air, that means by definition, the, the avalanches are coming our way and it was coming from both sides. And so much avalanche ice dust started falling down on the front edge of these approaching wind blasts that we couldn't breathe outside. So everybody dove back into the tents where we just run out of just a minute and a half before. Right. And that's about the time I turned on my, my GoPro camera. So I have some footage of that that I share on my website, uh, speakingofadventure.com, because I turned on my camera and I got a few seconds of the avalanche arriving and then myself being inside the tent terrified. And it was just the wind was swirling around and ice dust was falling on the tent. And this kind of process went on for good another three minutes. So it was like five minutes of the ground shaking and the avalanche ice dust falling on our tent site. I mean, that had to have been the scariest moment of your life. I mean, I know you've been through a lot, um, but, you know, that must I mean, that has to be up there because you don't know what's going to happen for so long. I mean, and it could be devastating. You could, who would want to be buried alive? And that was a very real possibility. Uh, I mean, one part, you know, you mentioned one thing is that when it happened, you had forgotten your boots and you had to like throw them on really quickly. That would be scary because what I wouldn't want to do is run out of my tent without my boots on and then get frostbite on your feet and survive, but have to have your legs cut off. I mean, there's so much going on because it's such a dangerous environment for humans aren't supposed to be up there. It's a very dangerous environment for humans. So there must have been a lot going through your head. Well, yeah. And, and you just picked out a, a great piece of that, which is, you know, here I am in Mountaineer for 33 years and I ran outside onto the glacier without putting my boots on yeah there was that much fear and anxiety yeah. and so much happening because you think about everything we just talked about the ground shaking the air's blowing ice dust is falling we're rushing out of the tent we're rushing back into the tent now the wind's swirling now the tent might get buried and i knew as a, as a geologist that the biggest chunks are in the back that 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 airwave coming down and carrying the ice dust that's just the front runner the bad stuff the ice blocks the size of refrigerators or houses or apartment buildings that might be coming and so i just sat in the tent clutching my avalanche beacon against my chest to make sure it stayed on my body when i got tossed about wondering when the big chunks were coming and this went on for minutes and then slowly the noise level died down and i was still cringing in my tent waiting for that ice block to arrive and it didn't and that's when i realized that I had survived through the avalanche. I yelled out to my teammates and other tents just, you know, three feet, eight feet away. We all started yelling to each other back and forth, checking. And I realized that nobody on my team was killed. Nobody on my team was hurt. And we'd all made it through these avalanches coming at us from both sides. It was miraculous. Yeah, well, it's kind of crazy because um, 
the avalanches still came pretty close to you from from you know what I have here is it was a hundred yards on one side and I know you don't watch sports but that's roughly the size of a football field oh thank um, you and then on <laughs> and then on the other side it was 300 yards three football fields that's pretty close I mean it's not close if you're you know, have a kickoff return and you go down you know it feels like a long distance but that's a very short distance um for a, for an avalanche so that that must have been both exciting. I mean, did you feel like you cheated death? I mean, did you feel invincible at that moment where you're like, I am unkillable? Or were you very humble in that moment? Uh, no, humble and nervous because we we had dodged those massive bullets of ice thrown at us and felt very lucky. But I also knew that we're going to have more of them because when there's, as you know, when there's an earthquake that big, there's always aftershocks. Mm-hmm. And those aftershocks c- can go on for days, weeks, months or years in right. the, in the terms of big avalanche like big earthquakes like that so i knew we were going to have more aftershocks and we just had proof that those aftershocks can cut avalanches loose so no we did not feel invincible we felt like we were absolutely in the proven shooting range and we're just waiting for the next shot to be fired by the continental plates and the avalanches um, but more importantly we got on the radio and found out that sadly the other camps didn't have the same kind of fortunate luck that we had. We called down to base camp and found out that their avalanche, they had different avalanches and their avalanches contained rocks, lots and lots of rocks. And that wave of rocks came down 3000 vertical feet. There was so much force that it washed sideways across the entire valley, almost a mile and blew through the middle of base camp. And sadly it wounded 70 people and killed 18 people making that day the deadliest day ever on Mount Everest. I mean that's insane because it adds to the you know to the the stakes here in this story because you guys have at camp two you've just you know nine hours ago you were in base camp you know I mean um, and other people had moved up to camp two which is a little bit higher um, right. so you know base camp is destroyed your exit you know your your evacuation portal your you know your exit path is completely blocked you're stuck at camp one people are stuck at camp two uh, and they you know you got to get everyone out of there and so there's kind of this you know hasty, um, you know, evacuation plan where they're taking helicopters up and helicopters don't operate very well at high altitudes because of the low oxygen. Uh, people have to come down from camp two and you have to time everything perfectly. Um, but you know, eventually you get off. I don't want to breeze over some of this, but I want to get to your, your, your story of going back to Everest. Um, but one of the things before we leave this, you know, there were, you get off the, you know, through a lot of exciting drama, uh, you know, for, for the reading standpoint, I'm trying to sell your book here, uh, from the reading standpoint, it's, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, just getting off the mountain. You even, you guys even have to decide because there's no airplanes going in and out of Nepal. How are you going to get back? Because the region is devastated. There's talk of maybe walking a 122 miles to another city, which you learn was actually part of the original, you know, when people used to climb up Everest, that's where you started. And you you end up going out of a very small airport. And if the if your time on Everest wasn't terrifying and that didn't scare you enough, getting out of that airport seems like one of the scariest moments. I've got a friend, uh, producer of the show, uh, Sarah, who is terrified of flying. She's not a, she's not an easy flyer. You were to get out of, you know, to get out of this earthquake zone, you had to get on an, an airplane that essentially was on a runway that was too short. And the end of the runway was a cliff. And I think if I remember correctly, you basically just take the wheels, you know, the wheels go off, it goes into neutral, <laughs> it goes down the cliff and then falls off the cliff. And you hope that there's enough speed to get to fly out of there. Um, that, I, I don't know. I don't know how you survived this thing mentally uh, enough to want to come back. But is that a pretty accurate description of this airport incident? Yeah, somebody listening might think you're, you're ex- exaggerated or describing a cartoon <laughs> or a right, movie. Yeah. But but it is true. I have I have flown out of that airport uh, four times now, or three or four times. And um, yeah, it, it's called the Lukla Airport. It's considered one of the most dangerous airports in the world. It's always in the top five list of most dangerous airports. And there are crashes there regularly uh, because you're taking off at 9,000 feet, the planes are heavily loaded, the air is thin, and when the planes are taking off or when they're coming in, there's no second chance. Most pilots always want to be able to go around and come back in for their landing. There is no second chance to land. Once you commit to landing a plane there, that plane is going on to that runway under control or not, uh, no matter what. There is no turnaround. And same thing when it takes off, it goes on a downhill run. The runway is sloped on purpose so that when the planes land, they go uphill and lose speed on the ground. And when they go downhill, they gain speed for the takeoff because 
there's not <laughs> enough runway to do the job as normally you'd want. So yeah, it's a terrifying place for sure. A lot of crashes. Uh, whatever you do, please tell Sarah, do not fly in and out of the Lukla airport because she will not enjoy that very much at all. No, 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 no. That, that would that would scar her for life. Um, so you so you get out and you know there's a lot of stuff that happens. You know the you get back and 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 in the moment you know now I don't want to kill your story here, but in the moment you say you're never going to go back to Everest. You know, and right. just like every you know the end of every movie that clearly is going to have a sequel, obviously you're going to go back to Everest. Uh, so you you decide to go back, and I can't help but think that there might have been there has to have been some financial incentive because they they extended permits, and that permits a lot of money. So I imagine that has to be part of it. Um, but you do decide to go back. Two years later, you decide to go back, and you know a lot of stuff. Even going back into your your second Everest run, there was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, you, you know, you had an you had an ACL injury you had to recover from. Um, you know, you you tried to. There was a lot of psychological stuff you had to get over. Sure. So there were a lot of your own personal mountains that you had to climb just to get prepared to go back to Everest. Uh, so what was that like? What was the mental preparation? I mean, you must have really had a passion and a desire to go back and climb that mountain because the stuff you had to overcome was was pretty daunting, in my opinion. Well, yeah. I mean, some people will hear me. I'm a public speaker and I share you know, keynote speeches for corporations and universities. And sometimes someone will come up afterwards and they're nice, but they're kind of probing. They go, hey, Jim, you, you seem like you're a fairly smart guy, but why were you so dumb as to go back a second time after surviving the earthquake and the avalanches and the long walk out of the earthquake zone? Why why in the Lord's name would you go back? Um, well, it, it's, you know, it was scary going back and I did not take it lightly and nor did my wife because we've now seen what can go wrong. And as a geologist, I even and looked to it looked into the, the the seismic situation i thought well maybe the big earthquake has happened and now it'll be safer there won't be any more earthquakes but in fact when i looked into the seismology data i found the opposite which is the plates didn't tear completely uh, and so as a result there's more strain built up in the plates that means there has to be more earthquakes they have to be bigger and they're going to happen 100 going to happen now i don't know if they're going to happen today in 10 years or 110 years but they are going to happen they have to and as in the, I shared in the book, that's what we call a seismic deficit. It must be repaid with earthquakes. That's the only way to pay back a seismic deficit. Yeah. So it was pretty scary to think about going back. But I had learned through uh, one of the experiences we talked about where I lost my friends on Mount Rainier, which is going back to the place where something happened can be healing. It's scary. Uh, it can be kind of ominous. And when you go through a traumatic situation, it scars people, whatever that trauma might be, whether it's war or a personal situation or an accident. Trauma is very real. But if you can take the time to digest the lessons and say, what does that mean? How can I use that to be smarter or stronger or a better community member or learn key lessons and and try and you know ex uh, exemplify those lessons in my own life and hopefully uplift other people? So over a long time, if you can sort of face that trauma and distill the lessons out, you can use that as fuel. And that's what's called post-traumatic growth. And that's really powerful. It's, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't come fast. And it doesn't happen for everybody who goes through trauma. But a lot of people that go through trauma can have post-traumatic growth that somehow makes their life better in the long run. So I had learned that going back to the place where something happened, although scary, can help you find a place for it or in my heart, in my head, in my psyche, and so that I can move forward and help me distill the lessons. So it was not easy or a quick decision to go back, and it wasn't just driven by money, that's for sure. It was uh, The money was really the small part of it. It was, is this going to help me be a better person and help me you know, do well in my life, or is it going to harm me by, you know, beating me up psychologically or physically? But eventually I decided there was probably more potential for upside than downside. My wife grudgingly agreed. And so I went back in 2017 and had to do all that training over again, except this time I'm going to be even older. I was uh, 54, I think it was, when I went back to Everest the second time in 2017. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that's that's a lot. I mean, those are not small things, and that level of growth is required. Um, and what's actually kind of crazy is, you know, you hadn't even experienced the dangerous part of Everest, you know, really. You, what you encountered was obviously dangerous and is obviously a part of Everest, but it was not a planned part of Everest. There were other things, there were planned parts of Everest that you had to go through uh, that you still hadn't done, and you had to face those on your second trip. Um, and, there, you know, there were a couple, I, wanna, I, I don't want to start this off... It, 
you know, I keep going to these dark places, but there, you had, there were so many challenges you had to overcome. I want the audience to understand what was going on because you, you don't really understand it until you read the book just how um, dangerous going up Everest is. Um, but, you know, you get there and there's already a couple, you know, I just want to start with a couple of, of sad stories. And this is before you summit Everest. This is, you know, during when you go back in 2017, these are things that happen. So, the first one is that, you know, every industry has their superstars, right? Even mountain climbing has superstars, which I found interesting. And you meet one, a guy I've never heard of, but I'm assuming climbers would, and his name is Yuli Steck, if I'm saying that correct. correctly. He's called correct. the Swiss Machine. Now, I just want to quickly tell you, I was in an airport and I met a superstar uh, of pro wrestling named Cesaro, who's called the Swiss Superman. Uh, so probably no relation. Um, but if I, you know... Yuli, if I saw him, what, do, what happened to as Yuli Steck happened to him, I would probably be traumatized as well. Uh, but Yuli Steck is, you know, a superstar mountain climber. He was there with you. You got to meet him. Um, and he was kind of free climbing some of these mountains. And you tell this story in the book where you kind of see him off in the distance, you know, climbing without ropes or whatever. Um, and then, you know, about a week after you see him, you find that he plummets 3,000 feet to his death. And I think this is before you've gone up. I mean, you may be at, ba you know, camp one or whatever, <laughs> but you're like starting your journey. Um, but, you know, that had to have been psychologically uh, at least altering in a way to see a superstar of mountain climbing, you know, who's being careless, you know, admittedly being completely careless and unsafe. But still, you know, the mountain, the mountain took him on your journey going up there. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, to say Uli Steck was on another level for me is inadequate. He was on another universe than me uh, in climbing skills. Mm -hmm. So he could right. climb high peaks without partners, without ropes, and extremely fast. And he had done it hundreds of times before. But as you point out, these mountains are so vicious and so ruthless that they killed Uli Steck. He was basically the Superman of climbing. And it was, and, and as a result, so it, it gets real deep into your psyche. You think, wow, if these mountains are powerful enough to kill Uli, uh, where do I sit on that scale? My goodness, I'm a, I'm a tiny little ant. Mm -hmm. And that's what something I shared in my book, The Next Hour, says, you know, people sometimes will use a very old phrase from decades past. They say, did you conquer the mountain? And I just laugh and shake my head back and forth. I say, nobody's conquering anything up there. Even the small little hill from Massachusetts could flick me away like an ant off the back of an elephant if it wanted to. We're not conquering anything at all. We're just trying to be safe and take care of each other and be in this awesome place to experience the joy of being in the mountains and working as a team. But if the mountains want to, they can just flick us away. So it's very humbling to be up there. And when, then when a superstar like Yuli dies, it's even more scary because you realize it just brings home how risky it is just to be in that environment. Yeah, but also, you know, I'm guessing it probably puts you in the mindset of making sure that you're safe, making sure you're double checking everything because, you know, it, it's right on the forefront of your mind at that point. You know, you, you talk about conquering. I, I got to, you know, I got to say, I've talked about this in some of my other podcasts. That is such an annoying attitude to have towards anything in nature. And it seems like a uniquely human trait to want to conquer everything, you know, not experience it. Um, you know, not survive it, <laughs> but conquer. And I think that that's such a, a toxic way to think about nature. Um, and, you know, anyway, I'm going to go on in a whole little tangent here, but that, that, uh, you know, kind of bothers me. Um, but, you know, one of the other, there's another, another story here that I th think is interesting um, is that, you know, you, you're, so you're, you're in the middle of climbing and you meet a guy named Big Jim. So Big Jim tried to climb in 2014, gets stopped by an ice fall, comes back in 2015 with you, Avalanche, couple couple avalanches, put a halt to that. We talked about that. He goes up with you, twenty seventeen. He gets to I think camp three, um, and then you know it's he's his time slow. It's probably not looking good for him from a physical standpoint. But then he just loses it. Uh, he starts having delusions. Starts talking about bus schedules, uh, and you kind of bring some medical people over. And you're like, I don't think this guy's all right. Um, and he gets helicoptered off the mountain, which is you know. He survived, right? He's alive, I hope. Right, right, um, right. Yep. So, so that's the positive side of that. But this is just another experience, another point of how random things can just take you on the mountain in the night. You know, um, if you're not, even if you're prepared, even if you've done it before, there is no guarantee you're getting to the top of that mountain. Um, and you were sharing, a, you know, a tent with him. So this is just like one more thing that must be getting in your head about just how dangerous this mountain is, as if you needed anything else at that point. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's just so many things that can go wrong on the mountain. And Big Jim is a highly qualified climber. I respect him and I like him. And he had, you know, some bad luck with the, the ice fall and the earthquake that wasn't in anyone's human control. Then he got sick. He was dehydrated and he was sick in the stomach and it, it affected his brain power, as you describe it, Camp 3. And for your listeners, Camp 3 is at an altitude of 23,700 feet. So there's about 60% less oxygen up at that height. Uh, and to pr further go beyond this, even after I wrote the book, uh, Jim went back and got near to the summit on the north side of Everest, and he was doing great, and the weather was great, and his oxygen tank failed on his fourth attempt. Wow. Uh, also not his fault, and it, it finally on his fifth attempt, Big Jim made it. So I'm happy to report that. He's home with, <laughs> good, with his good, family, good. And, and he summited. But that's just you know one more example of so many things can go wrong. And I've read a lot of Everest books, and uh, I had a tooth pulled because it was giving me a little bit of trouble. And every year, about three to five people get flown off Everest because of dental problems. Wow. So I had the tooth pulled before. Before I went to Everest, one of my teammates got driven off the mountain because of a tooth problem. Bad zippers, dropped gloves, um, frozen corneas, water on your brain, water in your lungs, it, uh, uh, heart attacks, uh, broken ribs from coughing so much. People regularly cough so hard because of the altitude that they break ribs. It happens Whoa. every year. Um, I mean, there's just a hundred things that can go wrong up there. Um, and so when you hear things, sometimes you hear in the media that climbing Everest is easy now and the Sherpas do all the hard work and you don't even have to be a real climber to go. I, again, I just chuckle to myself and shake my head. Uh, yes, it is easier when you have a strong team of Sherpas and our improved communication equipment and better down suits makes it easier than it was, say, 50 years ago. Yeah. But to say it's easy is very inaccurate. There are so many difficulties and so many things that can go wrong. Well, I want to, you know, I, I want to close this with possibly my favorite story in the book, probably because <laughs> I can be kind of a petty human being sometimes. So I found this to be really funny. But one more struggle that you had, well, it's going to be a couple different struggles, but it's going to be, um, you know, I mentioned PK, your Sherpa, who was earlier, you know, he had gone with you in 2015. Uh, I believe you liked him. You asked for him to be your Sherpa. You get assigned Correct. with him. Um, and he's, you know, from all, you know, from all accounts, he seems to be, you know, kind of on your side. He seems to be kind of with you. Then all of a sudden, at some point, he, uh, you know, things change a little bit. You know, you, you, um, you know, on the summit push, uh, you know, he, he kind of thinks that you're, you haven't made the right time and that you're not okay. And he tries to cut your, your climb short, I think at, at camp two, which kind of made things kind of weird. Um, and then, you know, on the summit push, you know, he didn't, you wanted to go and see the sunrise and he wanted to come down early. You wanted to go with some of your friends and he was being very difficult. Um, he tried to, you know, cut your, 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 um, your trip short. And also, by the way, um, I got to tell you, if I was climbing Everest for a once in a lifetime opportunity and I'd made it there and I wanted to a summit with my friends who were literally a couple feet behind me or B see the sunrise over Everest, I'm going to do it either way. Um, because that's the only opportunity you're going to get to do it. You were very nice and you kind of acquiesced in some ways to PK, but you know, this was kind of a crazy story because it's just one more now, instead of physical things you have to overcome. There's almost this social and even, you know, political, you know, dealing with people's always politics, right? So even this political situation where you have to deal with your Sherpa and then the guide leaders, uh, this must have been just in incredibly frustrating, especially given the fact that you're you're expected to tip these guys when you get down. Um, what was that like to, <laughs> to deal with on your summit push? Yeah, you just put your arms around a big, snarly, human, emotional, complex mess. Yeah. And that's what happens when you're on any big endeavor, whether you're you're running a company or you and your significant other are trying to negotiate whether to have kids or move across country. It gets messy. Yeah. Humans are messy. And you know what? That happens in the boardroom and in the kitchen and on Mount Everest. And so, yeah, you're, you absolutely summarized it fine. You know, PK and I climbed together a lot. Uh, he was absolutely in support of me. I, I'm greatly indebted to him to help me stay safe and get up Everest. But yes, towards the end, uh, as we were getting ready for the summit push, he came to the conclusion somehow that I was moving too slow. I was meeting all the time standards of our main expedition leader, guy from Seattle. And so I was, and I had a meeting with him. He said, yeah, you're doing great. Keep up the good work. Uh, but PK just wanted me to go faster. Uh, some of that is a difference in our ages. He was right. 27, yeah. I was 54. I can't keep up with any 27 year old, let alone a fit uh, Sherpa who does this all the time. Also on the, in the Sherpa culture on the mountain, the faster you go, the better it is for their career and their reputation. So so 
right. as I wrote in the book, uh, speed is social currency that that makes a lot of things happen in their community and their world. And I appreciate that. Uh, but I'm 54. I, I can't move that fast. I need to go a certain speed for safety for both me and him. But I, I can't be the fastest guy in the group. So, yeah, we had some conflicts. We talked it through a little bit. We came to kind of a uh, somewhat, of, you know, begrudging, but on understanding with each other. Just like sometimes at work, you have to work with somebody who doesn't see the world your way. Sure. But I think he's he's experienced enough, and so am I, that we knew that, okay, we don't see everything the same, but we're both professionals. We're both strong and skilled. We can make this happen, even though there's been a little love lost, perhaps, between the two as, as individuals. Right. And we worked fine together on the summit push um, up to camps one, two, and three, and four. When you get to camp four, you're in the death zone at 26,000 feet and above. And at, and up there, we don't call it the death zone because somebody might die. We call it the death zone because everybody will die in a matter of one to four days. <laughs> everybody will die. Right. So we're trying to go as fast as we can. So that's why we really don't sleep. Um, we don't eat that much. We're just trying to be on our feet and moving. Yeah. And PK and I did fine on the summit push. And he was trying to turn things around faster. But you actually have to be very open-minded. And that's why I think you need decades of experience to go to Everest's. I had to ask myself, is PK seeing the truth and we should turn around now? Or am I seeing the truth and I'm okay and I'm doing fine? Right. So I tried to go a lot by by independent measures, objective things like our speed and the time and the altitude and my oxygen consumption. And that's where decades of experience came in. I said, no, I'm, I'm going just fine. I'm right in that middle part of the curve, that bell curve where I should be with speed and safety. So because if I didn't know myself well, I might have just said, okay, PK, if you say so and gone down, or if I was worse yet, if I was too pushy and I was not doing well and we were going too slow, I might've pushed myself and or PK into a bad situation. And you can't do that. You have to listen to your partners. You've got to try and negotiate and say, what's the what's the real truth of the matter here? Yeah. So anyways, uh, you know, it was difficult a little bit relationship wise, but we summited in, in a very good time. We made it from the high camp at 26,000 feet to the summit at 29,000 feet in eight hours, which is considered a pretty good time. And then we came down very quick in, in like less than three and a half hours because I, I, although I was exhausted and, and sleep deprived at that point, I'd been, on, I'd been awake for 36 hours. I'd been exercising 24 of those 36 hours. Right. Uh, but, but I think that's when three decades of mountaineering worked well. My legs and arms and, and uh, hands knew what to do, even if my brain was starting to, <laughs> to, to flounder a little bit. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, if I'm on the mountain, if I'm on the summit of Mount Everest and I'm an hour away from seeing the sunrise over the world at the highest point, uh, it is better to ask forgiveness than ask permission, in my my, my opinion. I, I would have definitely stayed up there and dealt with the political fallout once we got off the mountain. Um, so the last story I want to talk about is arguably my favorite story in the book, and possibly one of the you know the, the probably the chance the, the probably the time you came the closest to any long term effects of this climb, and that was you're on your summit push. You guys are on supplemental oxygen. Um, you, you know, there's a lot going on. You want to get up and get back. Uh, I mean, you know, maybe stay an extra hour for that sunrise. But for the most part, you want to get up and get back. You have boots that have, uh, you know, heating in the, you know, heating elements to keep your feet warm so you don't get you know, frostbite and everything. So you've got everything fired up. You're ready to go. Uh, halfway up the climb, there's like a little thing called the balcony. So you get up to that point, and as you're climbing up, this is another another PK story here. You start to your foot starts to feel numb. And you tell him, and he's like, oh, we got to go back. And you're like, easy, dude. We got to, hold on, let, let's see what's going on here. So you go up and you realize, you take off your shoe, uh, you know, you stop at the balcony, you take off your shoe in this, you know, terrible cold. You find that there's a plug that's undone. Meanwhile, you got supplemental oxygen, you got all this gear on. You have to plug your boot back in and then get your boot back on all while right next to a, the what's called the balcony, which is, you know, a, I think a you know, 10,000 foot drop off the end. And I remember in the book, you say you kept telling yourself not to drop your boot. And I thought to myself, how devastating would it have been if you had dropped your boot down the side of the mountain and had to walk back without another boot on? You would have lost your leg. These are the types of stakes you're dealing with here. Um, what was that? I mean, you got it working and you ended up, you know, being all right, obviously, but that to me seems like arguably the most harrowing point in your journey. Uh, am I just making that up or did you feel the same way? No, you're absolutely right. It was absolutely a precarious moment in the journey because uh, my foot's getting cold. I've got to do something about it. PK's being cautious and saying, if your foot's cold, we're dude, we're only starting this all night journey. We're yeah. going to have to go back. But I thought to myself that 
it doesn't make sense why one footbed on my left foot is is fading away, but my right one is not. And I was thinking about that. And what solved it really both in figuring out the problem and not dropping my boot was the basic training of mine, which is I'm a scientist. So scientists, we work about work on multiple working hypotheses. Why is my boot not working? Right. And I had three theories on why my boot was not working. And so when we got to the balcony, I took my boot off to figure out which of the three it was. I figured out which of the three it was, which was fixable at that point. Two of them were not fixable and one was. I, it was the fixable one. I fixed it. And as far as not dropping my boot goes, again, that's decades of experience. And even going back to my work as a uh, work painting with my dad when I was a kid, uh, we used to have a thing that if, if you dropped your paintbrush, all the other painters would cheer because what that meant is you're now buying the beer at the end of the day for all the other guys. <laughs> and that was punishment and a lesson don't drop your brush. Even when you're in a precarious spot on a roof or on a ladder or on swing staging, don't drop your tools because you can't do the job and you might drop it on somebody else and hurt them. So that basic training of don't drop my boot, all that was you know, kind of ingrained in my DNA by then. So again, you had to have an open mind, solve the problem. And that's why I talk about Everest, both you know, the mountain, but metaphorically, because People that are listening may not go to Mount Everest, but they're going to have other problems. And it's solving one problem after the next. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes your companion agrees with you and sometimes you don't. You have to negotiate that stuff and solve the problem. That's how you get up the next big challenge or seize that next big opportunity. No, I, I think that that's exactly right. And I think that's a great place to end it. You know, this is your entire story is laid out in your book, The Next Everest, which is just a fascinating read. Uh, I mean, it is a it, whether you want to hear these stories in full uh, or you're a climber and you're thinking about climbing Everest and you want to find, you know, what it's really like to do it because it's hard to really capture that, I think, on a website or even videos. This is a, you know, it's like a daily journal. Uh, it's a great book. Where can people find this book? Where can people find you if they want? to get in touch with you, social media, all that stuff. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, the book is The Next Everest. Uh, it came out in April, and so it's out in hardcover, an ebook, an audiobook. They did a great job putting the audiobook together, and there's little clips from the audio portion of my video oh, wow. that I took there. So you, you hear actual moments of me and my teammates on the mount, which is unusual for an audiobook. Um, so anyways, they can get The Next Everest wherever they get their books, local independent bookstores and online. Uh, it's doing real well. There's actually going to be five international editions of it coming out over the months and years ahead. Uh, so so that's out there. Uh, my other book, the, the the ledge, is out there talking about the Mount Rainier story, and all of that's described at my website, which is www.speakingofadventure.com. Speaking of adventure, one big word. And I've got the social media out there as well. Uh, they can find me on Twitter as Climber Jim, and on Facebook at Resilience with Climber Jim. And I'm always posting some photos and lessons and adventures from all the other climbs I do as well. Well, I mean, that's great. Those are, I'm going to put all links to all that on the website as well. Hopefully we're going to get some pictures and video. I'm going to share some of that so people can see what it was like to be in, an, in the biggest earthquake to hit Nepal uh, and what it was like to get pictures, those summit pictures. You know, I know, you know, your your camera fried out on the way, uh, way up there. That's another part of the book, but hopefully you still got some summit pictures, uh, both for yourself and that we can share with the audience. So, you know, this is an incredible journey. And as you mentioned, the next Everest and an inspirational tale for people to follow their own dreams, set their own goals. And they don't, you know, they should be as lofty as they can be because you can accomplish them. I think that that's really the lesson from your book. Uh, just a great read. Jim Davidson, Jimmy Jam. I didn't call you that once, but I'm gonna do it at the end. Jimmy <laughs> Jam, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was great fun. Thanks a lot, Daniel. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. So if you like this show, you got to subscribe. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms. And if you don't already have a favorite podcasting platform, don't worry. We got them all listed on our website, fascinatingnouns.com. You can scroll to the bottom. You can find whichever one suits your fancy. You can also find us, our social media right there. Uh, and of course, every single guest, every episode is on the website arranged both by topic and and by guest last name, which is a great way to do it. Up at the top of the page is where you find it. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.